This is the Insight is Capital podcast. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. 2022 has been a challenging year so far for most investors. Falling stock and bond prices are taking a toll on investors, making it perhaps the abrupt end to a 40-year period of gains in the bond market like no other, and rates of inflation and inflation growth not seen since 1983. With correlations in stocks and bonds climbing to 100% this year or near 100% this year, it's been challenging at the very least to find much of a diversification punch among those traditional assets. Joining us to talk about how liquid alternatives are integral to diversifying portfolios against today's inflation and rising rates are Jeff Evans and Travis Wetch from TD Asset Management. Jeff is Vice President and Director of Quantitative Research and Risk Management. He focuses on factor analysis and quantitative risk assessment for the TD Active Global Infrastructure Equity ETF, TD Active Global Real Estate Equity ETF, and Greystone Funds. Travis is lead portfolio manager for the TD Active Global Real Estate Equity ETF, and he is the global real estate sector analyst responsible for the U.S. and international equity strategies. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jeff, Travis, welcome to the show. It's an honor and a privilege to have you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Let's jump in. What are you seeing in the markets today and, and how have things evolved over the course of 2022? So I guess I could probably jump in and um, start there. It, a lot of what we're seeing in, in 2022, I think you could argue, is really just a reversal or you know, investors questioning some of the trends that had emerged from the financial crisis up until you know, just before COVID hit. A lot of those themes would have been inflation running well below central bank targets, and then, of course, slowing growth in the global economy, um, you know, questioning uh, just the, the structural growth rates in general. And, and what that ultimately led to is a lower interest rate environment um, and, and arguably a repricing of assets to reflect uh, you know, that lower interest rates, people leaning into longer duration assets, uh, taking more speculative risk uh, you know, in order to reach for yield and, and so forth. And all of a sudden in 2022, we're seeing a very significant reversal of that and investors challenging a lot of those, a lot of those views. You know, inflation has turned out to be much stickier than the Fed expected. And, and even now when the Fed had sort of assumed things would start to calm down, we're just not seeing uh, the, the drop in inflation that, that they've been wanting to see. And it, it really is starting to, to challenge some of those built-in assumptions over the past decade of how much should we be paying for these longer duration equities? And, and are we maybe shifting into a new economic environment where inflation interest rates are, are structurally higher? Than, than what we saw. Um, and so that's a lot of what you've been seeing in the equity markets this year is, is those um, speculative high multiple segments of the market coming under pressure. The, the other thing that we're starting to see more recently here is the impact of all of these uh, historically um, dramatic and very quick interest rate increases hasn't really impacted corporate earnings yet in the United States. Uh, and yet everybody kind of assumes that, that it, it's going to at some point in time. And just given the, the magnitude and speed of those, those hikes, you know, I think the question is, are earnings expectations properly calibrated going forward? We're still expecting 7 to 8% annualized growth over the next two years based on consensus. And I, I think the, the suspicion is, as we move into this earnings season coming up, you're going to see more pressure and, and more questions on, on the earnings outlook. And if that's the case, you know, what we've seen so far is really just a, a multiple compression driven largely by the move in interest rates and real rates. Um, and, and there could be the next move down um, as, uh, as, as earnings readjust and, and expectations um, uh, sort of start to reflect margin pressure and, and the, the increased risk of a recession into next year. Wow. 
That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> but no uh, shortage of things going on this year. Absolutely. I mean, those those high beta names are, certainly have taken a beating. Travis, did you have any additional thoughts on on uh, what we're seeing and and uh, what's happening in markets? Maybe as it uh, relates more specifically to to real estate, you know, it's been been caught up in the market sell off um, as publicly listed real estate uh, securities generally tend to do during periods of market stress. You know, correlations go out the window, and things tend to be much more highly correlated than suggested by their medium and long term averages. But um, you know. I would say that uh, as as we look forward uh, and uh, and continue to look through uh, the next couple of years and and where things might uh, might improve, you know, real estate does look quite attractive. Um, you know, the valuations that uh, that we're seeing currently in in the real estate market suggest that it's trading significantly below its its longer term nav. Um, at you know roughly 0.85 uh, versus its historical trending range of closer to one, um, so we think there's a tremendous opportunity uh, within the real estate space itself. You know, and many of those being some of the high valuation names, high duration names um, that investors made popular uh, right up to the end of 21. Given that we're here to talk about liquid alternatives in general, and then specifically about real estate and infrastructure, I think it would be helpful. If we if we could start, if you could describe uh, first of all the depth and breadth of TD Asset Management's experience with alts and real assets uh, through many market cycles that we've seen in in recent history. Uh, real assets have really been part of our our legacy, um, where we've been investing in physical ownership of of uh, real estate as well as infrastructure for for multiple decades. Um, you know, as you noted, I, I've been covering the the real estate sector. Globally, uh, since 2008 is, is when that really began, um, and, and the sector has really evolved significantly since then. Not only with cleaner uh, balance sheets and, and uh, through lower leverage, but uh, also through the pure number of global opportunities to invest in. You know, historically, people really refer to real estate as as only being office, industrial, retail, uh, and multi-res. But today, there's significantly more types of companies and regions to invest in. You know, those that are focused in on storage, lab office, towers, data centers, daycares, you know, um, you know, a significant host of new opportunities to, to help diversify portfolios. But, you know, if we were looking back at, um, you know, the U.S. market and over the last 20 years, um, you know, Real estate assets that are publicly listed or, or REITs, as they like to be called, um, tend to outperform in, in high inflationary periods. Um, you know, strong income returns offsetting any potential falling REIT prices have generally been what we've seen. And, and in fact, through those periods, on average, you know, REITs have outperformed the S&P 500 by about five and a half percent. In periods of moderate inflation that are sort of listed between two and a half and seven percent, you know, outperformance has been you know greater than three three percent. Uh, periods of low inflation is really where, I guess, REIT returns have, have struggled, um, you know, and uh, and that's really driven by the strength in the S&P 500 relative to to real estate, where, you know, the income portion doesn't make up for the superior price returns. So, um, you know, when we're looking back at, uh, you know, history and we're looking forward to what kind of new market opportunities we're, we're faced with, uh, we do see, you know, general strength in, in, uh, in allocating portfolios towards towards real estate. In real estate, uh, in markets today, there's there's also been a fairly significant divergence between the valuations of public and private asset classes, which makes 
the public ETF quite attractive today, right? I mean, very high asset quality real estate is on sale right now. Absolutely. On just the industrial um, industry itself, um, you know, looking at where <clears throat> the implied cap rate of the stocks um, <clears throat> within that grouping, you know, going from a 3% to close to 5% uh, implied cap rates, you know, that implies significant um, devaluation of, of property values where, you know, from our uh, physical um, ownership of, of assets, you know, we're seeing much, uh, much less increase uh, in, in, in property values. As I mentioned, you know, one particular uh, stock isn't seeing any um, decline in, in asset value uh, as of yet. Looking at the Cushman Wakefield's um, analysis of, of, uh, of different industries, you know, they're, they're projecting that by the year end of, of uh, 2023, um, you're going to basically see implied cap rates of high force. So the public equity market is, is currently discounting um, you know, implied cap rates that aren't seen in the physical asset market until the end of next year. And you know, that's up for debate whether we actually trend in that direction. There's a significant amount of capital that continues to be placed into the ownership of, of physical assets. So um, you know, there there has been definitely some softening, but um, you know, everything from you know our uh, our on the ground research, you know, suggests that it's you know more like twenty five to fifty basis points of of cap rate uh, expansion. So um, you know, it's uh, it, it's basically put um, you know a lot of these publicly traded real estate assets um, in a significant discount position relative to their their physical counterparts. Yeah, very interesting. I, I think private equity doesn't have the uh, line item risk uh, that that publicly traded markets do because the valuations aren't marked to market on the private equity assets the way they are on on public markets. And so, so you know that that makes for a really interesting uh, opportunity and 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 definitely you know a chance to get in on to get into the uh, sector at a nice discount. Versus versus what's going on privately, that's right. Yeah, and, and we'd seen that through too in the uh, the periods of the depths of the COVID crisis too, right? Where you know initially you, you did see public real estate you know markets sell off dramatically, um, significantly recover by the the end of the year, but you know the actual asset values of uh, of the private market never changed. Right. So while the private equity holders were sleeping really well at night, thinking that everything was, was going uh, swimmingly, uh, um, you, you guys were out there snapping up the bargains. That's right. Yeah, you, you, yeah. Do, you do see the, uh, the potential for, for um, you know, taking advantage of that opportunity. Just to add in on the infrastructure side, you know, one of the, I think, interesting attributes of infrastructure, you know, it ties into a lot of the themes that we're seeing right now of inflation in the market. Um, be concerned for investors as to how that impacts portfolios and returns. Um, and, and what's sort of unique about a lot of the infrastructure assets is the regulatory environment that they operate in, where there's actually an inbuilt mechanism for these companies to recover inflation, not necessarily in the year that inflation is happening, but, you know, two, three years over time, um, you know, you tend to see that being captured over over the longer term. 
and, and very different from most of the other you know, companies in the market that have to try to push prices through. Uh, it's a competitive marketplace. You may or may not fully recover inflation in the, the near term. With utilities, it's almost automatic. So it's a nice feature of the infrastructure companies in this environment that you really don't have to worry about it too much. Uh, it's built into the business model and, and I think provides a nice contrast to real estate. You know, you've got a, a very safe uh, government-driven mechanism. In infrastructure, real estate, you do have a little bit of the competitive dynamics where you can uh, um, capture what's happening in the cycle over time. But you put both of those together and, and they, they, uh, you know, they'll capture inflation in slightly different ways at slightly different times. But the, the net impact is um, you know, to give you that inflation protection relative to uh, you know, what you see in the, in the rest of the market. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I like to think of, of uh, real estate and infrastructure as some of the more plain vanilla like liquid alts. They're, they're, they're possibly, they're a lot easier to understand than some of the more complicated uh, or leveraged uh, liquid alts that are out in the marketplace. You know, people can relate to, uh, they can relate to real estate, they can relate to the idea of infrastructure. We all use the 407. How have you seen the liquid alts in particular that you, that you manage, that you look after, how have you seen them perform against what are typically the great weaknesses of today's popular investment portfolios? Sure. I maybe be, I can uh, um, you know, give a first couple of thoughts on just a lot of the standard products that investors have gravitated to in the last couple of years. Um, I think one of the trends is that we've seen a move to um, certainly more passive products and, and large market cap uh, based indices. So the, you know, if, you, if you're making an equity allocation, it would be just a, a broad equity allocation globally uh, and market cap weighted. Um, and, and one of the, you know, there's certainly some merits to that, but the other side of it is when you hand off that decision-making to the market, the characteristics of that portfolio change significantly over time. Um, and what you're investing in, uh, you know, in 2010 can be very different. You know, it's the same product, but the actual exposures within that can, can change significantly. Um, just to give you one example of that, you know, 10 years ago, the U.S. was 40% of global equities. Today, it's almost 67%. There's a much bigger exposure to the U.S. dollar, U.S. equities, uh, and, and the assumption that U.S. companies will continue to push through very high um, uh, you know, profitability and price performance. And then even within the U.S. side, you've seen large cap tech stocks become uh, you know, incredibly large components of the index uh, with a, a significant amount of concentration at the top end. So you know, the, the broad-based equity products that a lot of people have gravitated to and, and the passive investments, you know, they've, they've shifted over time and have really become much more um, just a, a bet on large cap tech dominance. And I think when, when investors are putting portfolios together, it, it today is much more critical to actually separate those products out. Don't treat it as a single equity bucket but actually break the equity market down into the component parts. There's certainly a great case for owning technology companies uh, in some degree, but perhaps not as much as what's implied in, in the market cap weighted indices. And, and I think, you know, the, the large institutional pension funds provide a really good example you know, that advisors and retail investors can, can look at. They got onto this alternatives trend a long time ago, back in the early 2000s. Um, a lot of it was forced on them by changes in, in pension accounting, where all of a sudden these big unfunded pension liabilities ended up on their balance sheets and they had to go in and find a way to um, to actually manage that exposure, uh, manage the risk. What everybody did in the dot-com bubble, they, they had dialed up the equity exposure just in advance of that, had some very lofty return expectations on equities. Um, and of course, we didn't know how that, that turned out. It ended up uh, deflating pretty quickly and, and forced everybody you know, to realize equities actually had a lot of risk. And so you had a reversal trying to cut the equity allocation. Um, and the question is, where do you go? particularly in right. an environment where bond yields have been coming down at that point for 20 years, uh, they've gone down even further, of course. 
and so it made fixed income very challenging to allocate into. Uh, the, the big concern in the in the pension funds has also been longevity risk, people living longer. Um, and so you need something with an equity component that's going to participate in the economy longer term. Um, and that's where a lot of these alts started to kind of come from was this need to find a product that has some of those equity attributes. It can participate in the economy and economic growth over the long term, but it still has some of the stability and predictability that fixed income has. And so I think, you know, in, in terms of, you know, what the, the large institutions were forced to do is, is evolve their portfolios to have less equity, less fixed income and, and, and take on more of these uh, alternative products. Of course, they've been, been much more active in, uh, as you said, the more complex end as well, uh, hedge funds, private equities, managed futures. Um, but what you've seen in the last couple of years is for the retail investor, um, you know, some of those products becoming available in ETF form, uh, but it's the real asset products that I think have, have uh, seen a lot of growth because, it, as you said, is a, a, it's an easier product. Um, you know, it's effectively long-only equities. We're taking parts of the equity market and, and um, just expanding them uh, and, and giving them uh, the ability to have a, a, a greater share than what they'd have in just a simple market cap-weighted index. But what we've seen in a lot of our research is that these are truly distinct assets. Uh, real estate and infrastructure have very different volatility profiles, uh, much lower correlations to traditional equities, and they behave very differently. So when it comes back to you know, structuring a portfolio and, and trying to optimize it for a particular investors' risk preferences and risk tolerances, uh, you can do a much better job and, and get a lot closer to the optimal solution by splitting these parts of the, uh, the equity market out and, and modeling them separately. And maybe I'll just add that uh, you know, with with our liquid um, alternative products, you know, we're we're not uh, using uh, you know additional leverage. We're not uh, focused in the private equity space, and um, you know, our our focus is really more on those traditional assets themselves, and then on real assets that serve an economy. It um, provides much better uh, inherent stability uh, for uh, for the base of our, our product. What are the key characteristics of real assets like infrastructure and real estate that that behave differently or make them behave differently from the traditional equities and bonds? So I think one one of the attributes that's very similar between the two is that these are companies with um, very clear um, long-term cash flows. You know, uh, it, it, just by nature of the real estate and, and infrastructure businesses, um, you get a rent check every month on a, as a landlord, or if people want to continue to receive their electricity or water, you've got to pay the utility bill. Um, so it becomes a very predictable um, long-term term revenue stream. Um, and you can usually model this quite precisely. So that's something that you know, stands out very distinctly from you know an early stage tech startup where you, you really don't have that degree of certainty. <laughs> right. um, so I think that's, that's the, one of the key defining attributes of these uh, of these companies is the the long-term cash flow characteristics and then of course the fact that they're backed by tangible objects um you know in, in terms of how markets have shifted over time you've seen a lot of the sp 500 become more intangible uh if you just break down balance sheets across the us uh you know, the last time i checked it was 25 to 30 percent of, of the average company was goodwill or intangible assets um, what differentiates these companies is that it's it's almost exclusively hard assets and something you can touch and see uh, much harder to write down the value of that uh, uh um, you know, and, and the fact that there's replacement value and, and a physical um, uh, entity that, that you can ultimately use to generate and run a business um, protects a lot of the downside value. So I think that's sort of one of the features that, that defines both of them. 
Um, and, and maybe in terms of sort of the key differences, I think a lot of it comes down to um, infrastructure relies a little bit more on the regulatory environment uh, for, for its inflation protection and, and for the certainty or visibility of the return stream. Uh, real estate would tend to rely much more on, on leasing and contracts uh, over, over the long term. Um, so those would be my thoughts. I'm not sure, Travis, if you have other, uh, other views. Yeah, maybe just a couple. I'd say, you know, first of all, um, you know, the cost of construction, you know, generally trends higher over time. Um, that's very supportive for property values over the long term. Um, and, uh, you know, REITs themselves, um, you know, they, they own those income generating properties, but, um, you know, they, they also have a number of other levers that they can pull on, uh, you know, tenant upgrades, rent increases, redevelopment of existing properties. Uh, they can also do accretive acquisitions, ground up development, you know, uh, JV different products and, and, and branch off into to new business lines. So there's a number of, of structural <clears throat> differences there, I think, that, uh, um, that provide the benefit. You know, the key here, I mean, if in this market, this world that we're in right now, there's been so much financialization of the market and and business. It's nice to it's nice to come back and remember that that what we're actually talking about here are real physical assets. So that's a nice component to add to a portfolio that has largely been, let's say, financialized over the last 20 years, and especially where investors have taken on a larger share of of, of passive type holdings. Uh, indexes in their portfolios. Um, it's nice to know when you add assets like real estate and infrastructure to your portfolio that you're actually adding something tangible. In the context of that, how do you best see how investors can integrate real assets in particular into their model portfolios? Sure. I, I think maybe you know, the key point is to um when you're running models and asset allocation and, and considering how you structure a you know, portfolio for an investor, taking the, um, you know, whether it's the real estate sector out and treating it as, as a standalone entity or taking utilities out, um, it, it's extremely important just uh, given the nature of the volatility of each of these segments and the correlation to broader equity markets. Um, what we've tended to see is both of those sectors tend to have lower volatility than, than broader equities. Um, part of it is, again, just the defensive nature of these businesses through regulatory constructs or through contracts. Um, and the predictability of the cash flows and reinvesting dividends over time, all that tends to lean itself to being a little bit lower beta and lower volatility over the longer term, uh, which gets missed if you just lump them into the, a broader equity universe. Uh, but also the correlations, uh, and particularly for, for real estate, has seen much lower correlations um, to the broader equity market. Um, and, and generally speaking, you see you know, a, a risk reduction as well from uh, being invested in the infrastructure space. Um, so I think that's um, just the key thing. It's, it's not about just modeling equities. It's splitting out the individual pieces right. um, and, and, uh, and taking it into consideration that way. And structurally, I'm, I'm curious, I, I get, because we're talking on the subject of correlation, how has the correlation, uh, you, you know, you mentioned that, that um, real, real assets, real estate and infrastructure have, have a uh, structurally lower correlation. Um, how, how variable is that? Like when, when we have a market like we've had this year, how has it behaved in the context of this year? versus you know the more normal or or the mean so over the longer term again uh, or, or i guess perhaps the last 10 years uh just looking at correlations over time we've we've generally seen them widen out 
um, as right. a generalization. And part of that is just as big technology stocks became a, a larger and larger part of the indices and um, global equities became more growth tilted in nature. Um, these are much more you know, defensive assets. And so that just naturally brought the correlations and widened them out. Um, and, and then in, in terms of this year, um, we've seen a little bit of a difference between real estate and infrastructure. Uh, the infrastructure has definitely been the more defensive side um, and, uh, and is held in quite strongly. Um, real estate's had a little bit more uh, uh, um, volatility through the year and, and maybe um, hand off to Travis for a few thoughts, but we've, we've seen a little bit of a difference between the two products. Right. Um, what's interesting, if you take a two-year view, it was the reverse last year. <laughs> So, so let's, talk, let's talk about the differences between real estate and infrastructure because they seem to be very similar. There's, there's obviously some, some similarities between, between the two types of assets. So let's focus on what the differences are. Sure. Uh, maybe just stepping back on, on a performance basis, um, you know, through COVID, um, you know, um, it's been a challenging market for the last uh, couple of years, for sure. But um, through COVID, um, you know, the, uh, the portfolio itself held up extremely well. Um, you know, and, and in fact, then during the the recovery um, post the vaccine announcement, you know, we actually saw real estate continue to uh, to benefit and uh, you know up uh, near thirty percent returns type numbers, uh, keeping pace with uh, with broader market activity. You know, it's really this year that we've seen real estate sort of uh, have, face its challenges and uh, and continue to struggle. As Jeff mentioned, uh, you know, infrastructure has been a, a much more defensive product um, year to date. Um, so, you know, that's that's sort of interesting to to see it. Uh, you know, both are real assets, but behaving much differently uh, within the market. Some of that's related to you know the valuations and and where um, some of these real estate prices have uh, have come from. You know, over the last three years, they've uh, they've benefited greatly from lower lower interest rates, and and that move towards uh, maybe more of a defensive tilt. But um, you know, just for example, if you take a look at um, you know where cap rates were at the the end of last year, uh, for a name like Prologis, it was it was trading you know high twos, low threes. Uh, on an implied cap rate basis, and now it's trading closer to, uh, to four and a half, uh, five, and uh, so a significant weakness um, or higher cap rates, which which implies you know much lower property values. Yet on their Q2 call, uh, Prologis hasn't yet to uh, to announce any sort of material negative capital values. In fact, their their property values actually increased during the second quarter. So um, you know the equity markets um, or, or markets itself are, are basically anticipating that there'll be a significant weakness, um, yet we're not seeing it from a fundamental perspective yet. Very interesting. So Jeff, what are the differences on the infrastructure side? Um, so I think one of the things that we've seen, uh, the, the infrastructure portfolio um, had had some pretty interesting uh, disruptions through COVID. And, and we were fortunate to launch the fund uh, just after a lot of that, that started. So we didn't have to deal with the immediate uh, effects. Um, some of those would be uh, airports, for example, uh, which would be a, a fairly uh, significant exposure to the fund. Um, obviously, very uh, materially impacted by COVID with, with shutdowns. Um, toll roads as well saw some pretty significant shifts in traffic patterns. Um, and, and created a, a number of issues, um, you know, structurally being a, a large part of the infrastructure benchmark, but effectively, um, you know, uninvestable for a period of time. Uh, we, we took the view that, you know, at some point these would come back. Uh, they're fairly uh, uh, resilient long-term assets with um, strong regulatory environments, uh, particularly a lot of the Mexican airports. It's uh, it's odd to see an emerging market economy have a strong regulatory environment, but it's actually one of the best ones globally. Um, and, and they've seen extremely strong balance.
balance sheets. They've been very well managed companies, um, and and also happen to uh, have some of the the fastest traffic recovery. Uh, so there's been lots of regional splits. Uh, you know, where Europe, for example, or Asia has been much much slower. Um, so we've seen lots of regional dispersions in terms of how quickly things are coming back. Um, starting to see dividends um, uh, in in the airport space uh, come back and toll roads. Uh, you know, but it's been, it's been a bit of a drag in terms of income. Um, whereas other parts of the portfolio, so we've leaned more on the the more traditional utilities, for example, um, and uh, yeah, where where dividends have been much more consistent through through the piece. Um, but e- even in that space, lots of regional differences um, brought about uh, you know this year by what's been happening in in Europe. Um, at one point in time, um, you know, Europe was was very aggressively pushing forward on renewables and uh, and trying to build out their renewables platform, um, effectively mandating uh, the elimination of uh, natural gas and coal and ultimately nuclear power over the next twenty years. Uh, that created a, a, a what what people thought was a very visible long term growth path uh, for the European utilities to decarbonize, um, build out solar and wind, um, and, and generate some pretty significant earnings growth. Um, and when what's happened over the course of the years that has shifted materially. Yeah. Um, part of that just being, um, you know, changes in cost of capital. It's become a lot more expensive to finance these these wind farms. Um, and I think people don't necessarily realize it, but one of the biggest input costs in a solar or wind farm is actually the financing cost uh, of these over over time. So when you have large moves of interest rates, um, uh, it, it does change the economics quite a bit. Um, and and we've actually had the U.S. become um, you know much more focused uh, through the uh, um, you know some, some of the recent uh, government acts that have come out um, to really incentivize production um, of uh, solar renewables. Um, so you, you've actually had a shift of where the growth is um, and, and seeing a lot of the U, uh, U.S.-based utilities um, uh, become much more uh, focused on the renewable side this year. Um, so it's been an interesting portfolio and lots of regional variations. Um, and uh, you know, some of the long-term trends that we thought were in place in Europe really breaking down this year um, and shifting into the U.S. Um, so that's, that's what we've been seeing in the uh, in the infrastructure portfolio. Um, just lots of nuance of um, you know, addressing certain parts that were more effective by COVID, um, and uh, and then lots of variation. Uh, government policy, in particular, has has created challenges um, on the regulatory side, and just the uncertainty of whether companies can earn a return or invest in in renewables in uh, in Europe has has become a much bigger concern. Uh, whereas the U.S. seems to be focused on much more disciplined regulatory environment and, and incentivizing that investment. Quite significant differences between the two. Uh, is the bottom line. They're very different. I think we may have just spent so much time the last twenty years focused on stocks and bonds. The breadth of opportunities in, the, in, in both of the spaces that, that you're managing uh, have quietly expanded and also, change, and also changed quite rapidly as well. I think one of the most interesting changes that's actually taken place in the last couple of years is, the, is policy on, on nuclear and uh, you know, sentiment on nuclear as well. But I recall you know, watching this movie, Anthropocene, it's this uh, Ed Bertinsky film where one of the segments, he shows what's going on in Germany, um, where they have these massive, these machines the size of buildings carving up the uh, countryside in Germany for coal because they mothballed half of their nuclear reactors post Fukushima and, and uh, post Chernobyl. But now that they have this situation uh, where where you know their dependence on coal is causing much greater emissions than than they did in the past. It's it's kind of nullified the whole point of of you know under under the the aegis of climate change. You look at at 
you know, the destruction that's taking place in Germany right. by these coal miners, uh, you know, trying to e extract lignite from from uh, these terraform mines. It's it's incredible. Now now you you compound that with the supply shocks and then the war in Ukraine, and now the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. Germany is in dire straits. So is Europe. Europe is threatened. It has highlighted the how important infrastructure investments are, Absolutely. and and it has it has also changed the shape of of uh, policy. So now Germany has decided to tilt towards being more pro nuclear again. And seeing as they were buying electricity from the uh, the French nuclear utility, uh, you know, to make up to make up yeah. for the shortfall in their own production. Doesn't um, make sense, does it? So many interesting things happening. I mean, we're we're not experiencing the same problem, but when you contemplate, you know, the challenges of infrastructure and uh, the value of infrastructure now, now that these shortages have been highlighted, um, certainly uh, a different outlook for for those than for uh, traditional uh, stocks. Yeah, and I think one of the and on Germany, it's interesting because they may not be in quite as bad a state as people think they are. The the um, the gas reserves are actually fairly fairly good at this point, um, you yeah. know, much better than than people thought they would. So they they have a shot at getting through this winter. Um, I think if uh, you know if people could turn the temperatures down in their house three degrees, it would actually solve the problem entirely. <laughs> Whether they do is a different story, but there's there's options that potentially uh, don't make it completely catastrophic. Um, it's next year. That's really the bigger next winter is the bigger concern. Um, but the the other thing that's happened with the speed of the renewables build there's so much focus on these intermittent wind and solar farms um, people kind of forgot about how the overall power grid has to function you need that reliable base load um, exactly whether, you yeah know, traditionally coal or, or nuclear or something like that or increasingly it can be the natural gas plants that can can still provide that but that's the until we have all, you know all these other components of the battery storage or, or long-term techniques um, it's, it's going to be challenging to fully build out the renewables um, and then it also comes down to you know if you do build this out um, you have to you have to transmit that electricity and and um the, the us is kind of interesting that way that the the bulk of renewables gets generated right in the middle of the united states and yet the bulk of the people that consume the electricity are on the coasts and so you need an enormous amount of transmission investment um to uh, to kind of move that power from from the center to the outside um and i think what we're finding is a lot of these transmission grids are incredibly old it's it's 30 40 50 year assets that need to be significantly upgraded and enhanced over time um, so the the interesting thing about what's going on is that there's there's an enormous amount of investment opportunity and and that really hadn't been the case for 20 years utilities it kind of gotten boring. Nobody was building new um, you know, electrical power plants. Um, power consumption per capita had basically flatlined or was even going down because of efficiency gains. Um, and, and now suddenly we have this path for the next 20 or 30 years of um, very certain um, you know, regulated uh, uh, growth as we deploy some of these solutions. Um, but it, it absolutely underscores the importance of, of nuclear uh, and, and some sort of baseload capacity until we can solve some of those, those challenges of intermittent production. Uh, the unfortunate Fortunate thing is, there's uh, you know, one company in the United States, a fairly large utility that's uh, going through the process of building nuclear, um, and unfortunately, it has been one that has been plagued with cost overruns um, and significant delays. It was uh, supposed to go online, I think, in 2020 or 2021. They're now looking at probably uh, 23 and 24 um, as as the more realistic timelines. And so, you still have a lot of those logistical issues. Um, we need to find ways of building smaller nuclear plants and, and build them faster. Uh, the the really large scale plants uh, continue to struggle. Yeah, there's been certainly a lot of talk about the uh, SMRs, small modular reactors, 
as a as an alternative to to building full full sized reactors. The turnaround time on these projects is far longer than people realize. And 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 again, these are massive, you know, state sponsored projects. In your portfolios, in these in these strategies, to what extent are you looking downstream? Well, I would say on the real estate side, I mean, you know, the policy framework, you know, needs to be supportive for sure. Um, you know, we've seen over the last five years the length just to get approvals on on construction timelines have just blown out. You know, projects that did you know, used to be able to start in 18 months are now taking three to five years just to get policy approvals. So, you know, that's really lengthened um, the cycle of construction times, you know, combat that with, uh, or on top of that, you've seen, you know, construction costs continue to increase. So some of the projects, um, you know, continuing to need higher, higher rents in order to, to justify the IRRs. Um, you know, that all plays a, a major part um, in, uh, you know, the ongoing development. But, you know, the advantage, I guess, of some of that is, you know, there's a lot, been a lack of supply that's really been brought to the market. Um, right. And that's really evident in, you know, the industrial segment. We've seen it uh, quite dramatically, and that's a global, um, you know, issue. Um, as well as in, in multi-res, um, you know, just one example, going back to Germany for a second, um, one of the companies, a multi-res company in Germany, they actually, every time they have a vacant apartment, they have about 200 applicants for that one single apartment. Um, so it's just a huge, significant demand, right? And right. very, very little supply. And the Mitch Spiegel, you know, the the government regulation that's in play in order to, to restrict rental growth, you know, has really slowed down, um, you know, that overall supply of of new products. So, you know, there needs to be a bit of a, a policy action too in order to help support balance uh, in some of these markets. The shortage of infra of new infrastructure, uh, and the value of pre-existing infrastructure is in, is sort of the sweet spot here right because the, the the existing infrastructure the value of the pre-existing infrastructure has gone up because of the shortage and the shortage yeah. is driving opportunities in future construction yeah. of of yeah. new real of new real estate and new infrastructure so so you have the opportunity in what's new and what's coming in the pipeline which could take years and years uh but there are obviously companies at the front line that that are benefiting from the drive to build new infrastructure or to replace old infrastructure but then there's also the infrastructure itself that exists that because of the shortages the valuations go up so you have that double win and 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 sort of implicit in that is the fact that it's inflationary. So by owning these inflationary assets, you're hedging against inflation. And I think one interesting or even two interesting examples on the infrastructure side, if you look at things like railways and rail tracks, um, the supply of rail tracks has actually been shrinking over time uh, just because of the the logistical challenges of building it um, yeah. and a lot of tracks being decommissioned. So for, for those who own railway tracks, um, it's it's incredibly lucrative. Um, and uh, you know, there's, there's many attributes of, of railways that make them much more attractive. If you're trying to move goods uh, by airplane or by truck, it's it's far more um, you know, higher emission than if you just put it on a train. Uh, 
that's actually very uh, low emissions to move goods by train. Um, so it has a lot of benefits if companies can transition. Uh, everybody's focused on ESG and reducing their carbon emissions. Um, the railways are seeing you know, some demand uh, just on that side. Um, but you know, as well, just the, the lack of new um, you know, rail track itself creates a very strong pricing environment for these companies. Um, and they're not regulated. That's one of the few industries where it really is competitive in terms of being able to charge a price uh, to a client, yeah. unlike a, a highway or an airport where it's, it's a much more regulated toll. Um, but the other one that's interesting is the energy pipelines, um, where actually the valuations have gone in reverse. They're, they're actually quite cheap because of the ESG concerns and, and the, the long-term value of the assets. Um, and and, and it, you know, at one point, it created a lot of questions as to whether there was terminal value in these assets or not. Um, the, the challenge, of course, there is moving oil and gas across the U.S. and Canadian border has been fraught with a lot of political risk. Uh, it's been very, very difficult to get anything approved. And even when it is approved, sometimes it, it, it's unapproved. Uh, so there's a lot of, of challenges there. Uh, but even within Canada, we've seen an enormously long regulatory cycle uh, to try to get assets built to move uh, oil and gas from Alberta to the uh, uh, the, the B.C. coast, for example. Um, so it really does raise the value of all those existing assets. Uh, the good news is we are seeing new projects come in. Uh, uh, so they, you know, there, there is new supply coming, uh, but it's uh, it's nowhere near enough. Uh, you know, if, if we'd had more pipelines, we could be moving, uh, you know, far more crude and, and gas than we have. Uh, but you just it's the the interesting part of of uh, the the gas pipelines. There's been a number of studies of the U.S. electric grid and and how it will evolve as it decarbonizes over time. And there's there's basically no scenario where you can get rid of gas. You need some degree of natural gas peaking plants. You need some degree of natural gas to heat houses. And in, in uh, um, you, know, you think about the center of Canada. In Saskatchewan, Manitoba, it's, it's pretty hard to, to heat with electricity alone during the winter. Um, gas is going to be playing a, a role there for a very long time. Um, and uh, you know, I think what people have realized is that these are extremely important assets, and, and even more so now with the need to export gas to Europe. Um, a lot of the companies that we own are, are very actively involved in, in liquefied natural gas and, and transmitting to the global markets, and, and that's just going to become a, a bigger and bigger area over the next 10 to 20 years. Interesting. I, I, uh, you know, I recall a quote, I'm quoting David Einhorn, from Greenlight Capital, but he said last year in a letter that the world is decarbonizing demand faster than decarbonizing supply. It's going to be a lot longer than people realize before we can actually abandon fossil fuels. And and there's a lot to be said for basic uses. You, you both clearly do a great deal of fundamental analysis in your work. And um, that's evident in in what we've been talking about up till now. How do you manage these unique strategies? We, um, we basically utilize the, um, the, the same process. Um, you know, our background obviously is, is coming over from Greystone uh, with, with TD buying us. But um, um, so, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've um, copied or are, are using that uh, that philo same philosophy. Um, it's a three-step process, um, and and really, uh, you know, the main differentiators, I guess, of our, our ETF overall. <clears throat> you know, it is actively managed. Both products are actively managed. You know, we we hold concentrated portfolios, and um, you know that gives us the capability of of uh, of getting attractive exposure. Um, to growing themes that, would, that we see going on in the marketplace, whether it's you know on a sub-industry or, or even regional basis, that global focus that we have continues to uh, provide for diversification within the portfolio itself. You know, and um, you know, really uh, you know, at, achieving um, 
uh, diversification outside of just you know one market. Um, you know, and uh, you know the portfolio has exposure to multiple regions. Um, you know, we um, you know go back and going going back to the the, the process itself. So it's a three step process. The first step within that process is is the quantitative engine, um, the quantitative tool that we use. We we screen the universe, uh, looking for growth characteristics uh, that we find attractive, as as well as valuation and quality, stability, are, are all variables that we go into the into the model itself. From there, we'd we'd provide uh, you know short list of, of attractive opportunities, and the fundamental analysts um, on each team would uh, would dig into those higher quality or higher ranking stocks. Um, you know, when you find interesting ideas, you you bring it forward to the team, and you have a, a team discussion. You know, fully vetting the the idea itself and uh, and the analysis. So. Um, and then the you know portfolio discussion happens where where we see how it fits into the portfolio and and uh, see how it impacts uh, portfolio characteristics. The one thing I would note um, that that differentiates our products, um, a lot of the ETFs that have been launched over the last couple of years, um, you know, are, are either you know, generally passive and just tracking an index, or for the active funds, it tends to be much more quantitatively driven. So you'd have a quant model up front uh, that just is effectively replicating what the model is doing and, and tracking it over time. Um, so you, you tend to have a lot of upfront work uh, developing the model. Um, but the, the challenge with that approach is that markets change and markets evolve over time. And, and you have to be very careful to make sure that managers, if it's a, a pure quantitative strategy, have the flexibility to adapt, and, and most of them don't. Um, one of the benefits of having a quant and fundamental strategy combined, uh, we have the discipline of a quantitative screen up front. Um, there's there's over 600 companies globally for real estate that we could invest in, about the same for, for infrastructure. Um, you need a quant model to be able to process all of that information and distill right. it down into a, a manageable subset. Uh, but there's things the quant model can't pick up, um, and particularly uh, for our style of investing, which is tilted more towards growth opportunities, it's very hard for a computer to try to figure out um, the quality of those growth opportunities and the diversity of those growth opportunities over time. Um, you know, that's something where uh, you know, a human analyst can go in and, and really get a much better sense of um, you know, if a company has a large land bank, if it's all uh, on, on one side of the country, you know, they're very locked into the dynamics and population on that side. We want to see you know, what the, uh, the, you know, the flexibility um, in, embedded in, in those growth pipelines. Um, and then you know, how effective management teams are at actually executing that over time as well. Um, very hard for a computer to get a sense you can try to tease some of that out through historical data, uh, but there's there's each discipline is good in its own different aspects, um, and and you know we think being able to bring them together uh, gives us a pretty unique solution. Uh, you don't really see a lot of that uh, still in the marketplace today, um, and certainly one that's supported by a large institutional investment team. Uh, you know that we are, um, and uh, you know the, the ETFs have the ability to benefit from the knowledge of our fundamental analysts that are working on uh, much larger institutional scale portfolios. How do these liquid alternatives infrastructure structure and real estate, how do they fit into existing model portfolios or into existing portfolios? So I think for, for a lot of investors that are probably starting from something similar to a 60-40 um, you know, equity bond split, um, you know, the question is, I guess, sort of how do you start integrating real assets right. and, and what level do you start uh, you know, putting them into? Um, I guess it's important to note that there already is some exposure. If you have a broad-based equity um, you know, a position, if that's kind of the starting point, real estate's about you know two percent of the global benchmark. Utilities around three, so you probably have um, you know call it five percent exposure already, and then times sixty. So you know there's going to be some marginal exposure. Um, but when you contrast that to what the private pension funds have been doing, uh, it's much more common these days to see allocations of twenty to thirty 
30% um, into some of these real asset positions. And that's obviously wow. you know, pri- uh, you know, into hedge funds, private equity as well, but um, you know, a fairly significant gap between the two. Um, so I, I think the one thing investors need to think about is um, you know, how, and I guess one of the other defining attributes of real assets is that they tend to be more income oriented. Um, that's going to be more appropriate for some investors than others. Um, so figuring out what the level of income needs are in the portfolio uh, is is a key part of that decision as well. Um, but what we've tended to see, you know, over time is that a lot of these more defensive assets have actually quite often outperformed the more speculative investments over the longer term. Um, and and particularly in in some of our strategies where we're emphasizing quality, uh, you know, there'll be periods of time where the the lower quality companies went out um, over the long term. If you can buy the high quality real estate, high quality infrastructure, um, it tends to compound over the longer term. Um, so that, that you know, it really depends on an individual's risk tolerances. But I think that's uh, um, sort of, you know, use the use the pension plans as as a reference point. Uh, they've done a lot of like work on this over time. Um, and then the question is kind of where do you potentially pull that from? Um, you've got the equity or the bond side of the portfolio. Um, and I'm not sure it necessarily has to be an either or. Uh, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, you know, the challenge with equity markets, we've seen a lot of valuation compression this year. Uh, multiples are trading at you know, effectively the long-term average today, uh, give or take. But if you look at equities relative to bonds, the equity risk premium is actually still extremely low relative to history. So you're not really getting uh, you know, the multiples better, but relative to interest rates, uh, that relative equity bond uh, uh, return, um, you know, it's, it's still pretty, uh, pretty, pretty tight. Um, on the bond side, um, you still have a lot of potential risk factors. Oil, uh, we saw the $2 million, uh, cut from OPEC today. Yeah. The EU is going to yeah. start sanctioning later this year. Uh, there's upside risk on, on oil that could still keep inflation embedded for longer and interest rates higher. Um, the Bank of Japan hasn't moved. Uh, they've, they've stayed quite stuck at, at 0% yields. Um, but if that changes and their their governor uh, potentially changes early next year, you could have a rethink of policy. That could be another wave up in interest rates. Um, and then you still just have an enormous amount of government debt sitting on um, central bank balance sheets, which is depressing term premiums. Uh, the, the New York Fed, I just had a look this morning at the term premium on a 10-year bond is minus 75 basis points. <laughs> it's normally plus 100 to 200. Um, so if that starts to shift at some point, uh, you know that's, that's the other thing that could drive yields up. Um, and, you know, and that's the unfortunate challenge with bonds. The, the, the valuation of bonds, the term premium, isn't attractive either at this point in time. Um, so, you know, in terms of how you start integrating some of these real assets, it's, it's probably not do you take from equities or bonds. Um, it's probably just dialing down both and, and, uh, and, and dialing up real assets in, in place. What are, the, what are some of the pros and cons of real estate and infrastructure as diversifiers that you've seen historically? I, I would say that um, in, in certain periods, you know, if we go back and we look at the, the GFC, for example, in, in 2008, um, you know, real estate, publicly traded real estate, um, you know, had a lot more leverage than, um, uh, you know, was, was safe. And, you know, with the, the crisis that, that pursued, that's, uh, that caused a, a significant um, risk during the market, I, I think they've learned their lessons from there. They've we've seen balance sheets um, uh, and their leverage, overall leverage, get cleaned up quite dramatically. Much lower leverage in today's market, uh, much higher quality asset base. Um, so you know, during certain periods, you know, there are always, I think, um, macro factors that uh, that influence some of these assets. Um, you know, for example, you know, as going back to our policy discussion. You know that's having an impact on you know that supply and demand imbalance, uh, but you know that could reverse it at some point. Um, doesn't look likely in the near term, but uh, it's something that we we continue to monitor. 
One of the things that I'd emphasize as well is just that, you know, it comes back to the cash flows, the certainty of the cash flows and whether it's, you know, the, the contractual nature that effectively guarantees them over long periods of time or the, the regulatory structure. And these are core assets that are absolutely required by the economy. Um, that allows you to get, you know, at least a reasonable sense of what a floor valuation should be, um, unless you have a, a you know, complete occupancy loss or um, you know, a significant shutdown in an electric grid, uh, some sort of extreme scenarios. Um, you know, you can, you can model that out and get a pretty good sense of what these companies should be worth at a minimum. Um, it's much harder to do that you know, at the end of the day, what's the right value on um, you know, a, a large cap tech stock or a software company um, where you just don't know, you know what the long-term uh, outcome is going to be. It's, it's just a little bit harder uh, to, to value the, the intangible firms and, and the, those longer-term growth opportunities. Uh, so I think that's something that, you know, makes these uh, much more important diversifiers is just the the predictability and the fact that it's backed by contracts. Uh, the, the other thing I'd point out is it's always nice to contrast this with the other diversifier, which people like to talk about, which is gold. Um, and, and you know, that's something that historically has had a very low correlation to equity markets. Um, and so from a correlation perspective, it's a great diversifier. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a commodity um, and, and it tends to be a very volatile one. Um, and then, of course, the gold producers, the companies are, are even more leveraged to that gold price. Um, so what what you have in real estate and infrastructure um, are you know, good diversifiers, maybe not as low correlation relation is gold, um, but much lower volatility, much more stable. Uh, so when you, you kind of combine those two into a portfolio, um, it's a more reliable source of, uh, of diversification over time. Um, and you know, people like to talk about gold as an inflation hedge as well. Um, and it, it is over the longer term, gold has outperformed the, the US CPI by about five times, but it's happened in two discrete bursts. It happened in the 1970s um, and then the early 2000s. And then you had periods from the 1990s, uh, you know, 1980s and 1990s where gold actually underperformed inflation substantially. Um, when you look at real estate and you look at infrastructure, it's an annual adjustment to your electric bill. It's an annual step up in your rental contract. Um, it's it's very closely linked. So each individual time period is going to see that um, uh, um, sort of link to inflation. So it's a, it's a more reliable uh, inflation hedge in, in our view. To your point, Jeff, about the pension funds really ramping up their allocation to infrastructure and real estate. Um, that that happened during a period when you know basically the rest of us were in love with the stock market you know during a period where the S&P 500 for example had annual returns you know annualized returns of 16% over you know a decade which is twice the historical norm of 8% effectively you know these assets seemed boring compared to what was going on in the equity market in the broader equity market Diversification means always having to say you're sorry in the context of advisor to client, right? And and what ends up happening is that is that they're underappreciated during periods like the last decade. And so you end up being underinvested. And now we're in a situation where we wish we had overinvested in more of these, you know, alternative assets in, in real estate and infrastructure. Just to cap things off to your point, um, you know, following the lead of of the pension funds who were most likely allocating to infrastructure and real estate during a time when they started to feel very uncomfortable about equity valuations and and looking back at fundamentally valued assets any closing thoughts? I guess one one thing that I'd say is it's easy to get caught up in what's happening today. We we have a very 
uh, embedded high inflation situation uh, that people are worried about. Central banks are responding quite aggressively to it, um, and and the concern is uh, you know, to zero in just on on that. Um, but we're also already starting to see some some signs of weakness. We've seen a, a you know a sharp pullback in the number of job openings this week in the U.S. Um, starting to see a lot of the leading economic indicators roll over and surprise to the downside, um, and a lot of the components of inflation um, that have been and, uh, you know sort of driving inflation up over time uh, you know ultimately will reverse. It's sort of a matter of mechanics. At some point, used cars are going to stop going up 50% and um, start going down. Um, there's there's actually been a lot of apartment construction in the U.S. Uh, over the last couple of years, um, and you know at some point in time that should start to feed into to rent growth and, and slow things down on the multifamily side as well. So there's um, you know the, the inflation will start to moderate, and I think the big question is: Do we go back to some of the longer term secular trends that everybody was worried about before COVID? Uh, we had an enormous amount of debt before COVID. We have far more now. Now with governments uh, piling on on debt, um, and then you know add to that what Europe is doing and, and being forced to do to, to help with the uh, the energy situation this year, um, the, the evidence tends to be that at higher debt levels um, reduce real GDP growth over time. Uh, so it's it's going to be a headwind for growth. Uh, it's going to take a long time, you know, absent a huge inflation shock, for that to roll off. Um, we've also continued to see an aging of the population um, as the the population ages. That also tends to slow down growth. Uh, and and on the inflation side, you know, retirees on a fixed income tend to not accept price increases very well. Uh, now maybe there's wage inflation in the working age population to offset that, but you know at the end of the day, uh, you've got these big structural forces that were creating lower growth and lower inflation before the pandemic. Um, and of course, you know population growth is slowing down dramatically too. Um, you know, the the birth rates, uh, particularly through the pandemic, are now some of the lowest that we've seen um, in 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 decades, and, and getting much closer to sort of a peak population. Um, that's been one of the big biggest growth drivers over the last couple hundred years. Um, you know, if this, you know, it certainly isn't as uh, uh, temporary as people thought it were going to be, but there is a possibility if you look out two or three years that we're back to those same discussions of structurally lower growth. Um, and if that's the case, you know, interest rates probably have to come down to reflect that. Um, maybe not as much as they were pre-COVID, but, uh, you know, certainly lower than where they are today. And if that's the case, all of the problems that the big pension funds had of you know, too much equity risk, you can't replace it with fixed income uh, because the yields are low. That's what drove them into alts. And I, I think you're going to continue to see those trends uh, persist for, you know, through the next decade. Um, you know, the, the fundamentals of, of most developed economies haven't changed, and if anything, they've gotten worse. Uh, so it just underpins how important these assets are uh, in portfolios and, and long-term strategic allocations. Thanks, Jeff. Those are great parting thoughts. Thank you, Jeff and Travis, for your incredibly valuable time and your insight. It's It's been terrific to chat with you. Thanks, Pierre. Yeah, thank you very much.